Alright, 2 Samuel chapter 2. Sunday morning we closed out the final chapter in the life of Saul, which is actually the first chapter in the second book of Samuel. Now if it were mine to decide, I would have placed 2 Samuel chapter 1 right after 1 Samuel 31, making it 1 Samuel 32, and 2 Samuel 2 would then be 2 Samuel 1. Did you catch that? Okay. The first chapter of the second book of Samuel really, I think, kind of belongs at the end of the first book of Samuel. It, it doesn't really matter so much. I mean, they didn't ask me my opinion when they put together the, the Bible. I wonder sometimes why. But in the original Hebrew scriptures, in the Tanakh, Samuel was a single volume. This was one book. And we have a tendency, you know, as we kind of go through time to divide things up, try to make it easier for us to follow. We add the scripture references and, and we have, add our little headings and all that stuff. Well, it was just one book, the book of Samuel. So because of this, 2 Samuel doesn't need a whole lot of introduction because we spent some time several weeks back introducing 1 Samuel, which should introduce 2 Samuel, which is all Samuel altogether. But I will point out a couple of things before we get on into this half, really, of the story, this part of the book. I shared three things to watch for when we first started out in the book of 1 Samuel. Three things. The rise of the kingdom. We've already seen this happen in Israel. The rise of the kingdom of Israel. And that's literally from a theocracy where God is in charge and the ruling class truly would be the priesthood. Out of that theocracy into a monarchy where you have a man as a king. And Saul is introduced as that first king. So we have the rise of the kingdom. Second, we have the rise of the prophets. Now prior to this time, there were prophets. In fact, we'll talk in a few moments about the first prophet, Enoch, all the way back in the seventh generation out of, after Adam. Enoch is the first prophet that we have actually recorded in Scripture prophesying. And there were prophets before Samuel, but not in this, not in this mode. Samuel is the first prophet in this new season where God will now speak to the people not through the high priest as much as through the prophets. And he will send the prophets to the kings and to the people to bring his word. And Samuel is the first of those. 1 Chronicles chapter 29, verse 29 tells us that the acts of King David from first to last are written in the chronicles of Samuel the seer and in the chronicles of Nathan the prophet and in the chronicles of Gad the seer. And if you've been with us studying this, you know that, that they are all three together probably the likely authors of First and Second Samuel. Primarily because Samuel dies in the, toward the end of First Samuel, so he couldn't have possibly written Second Samuel. So Gad and Nathan, they're involved with that too. And we'll meet Nathan and hear more from him, and we'll hear more from Gad in this, in this second book of Samuel. By the way, four prophets were mentioned in the verse I just read to you. Let me read it to you again. The Acts of King David from first to last were written in the Chronicles of Samuel the Seer, the Chronicles of Nathan the Prophet, and the Chronicles of Gad the Seer. And the fourth one, don't forget, is David himself. David being one of the most important prophets that we have in Scripture because David, in writing the Psalms, will prophesy in Psalm 22 of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Psalm 22 along with Isaiah 53 are two of the most powerful passages we have in the Old Testament Scripture of the crucifixion. And if you read those not realizing they were written historically hundreds of years before Jesus, you would think they were eyewitness accounts. Pretty amazing stuff. Well, David is not only going to be king, but he is an amazing prophet as well. So these major themes, the rise of the kingdom, the rise of the prophets. Oh, and number three, the rise of prayer. Where prayer becomes a much more intimate thing, possibly than it's ever been before. As we see the relationship of David with God the Father as he speaks with him. 1 Samuel opens up with prayer. 2 Samuel will close with prayer. They're like bookends at the beginning and end of the book of Samuel. 
there they are. So these major themes are going to continue on in 2 Samuel. The difference is that now, at this juncture in the story, the focus will narrow. It will get very specific. Now, first Samuel, we read about Saul and Samuel and, and David and, and some of the other players in this. Now that we get into 2 Samuel, it is all about David. This is the book where we truly see David come into to full play as the primary character. And you can almost divide 2 Samuel in half as follows. The first ten chapters, 2 Samuel 1 through 10, talks about David's triumphs. The second, or the, the rest of chapters, chapter 11 through 24, will show us David's troubles. David will become king. He's not going to become king easily, but he will become king and he'll have some glory days. But he's going to get into some mischief and he's going to have some problems and he's going to have some heartbreak and heartache. Just at the time when you think things should be settling down for David, even in his old age, he will be on the run again, just as he was running from Saul. So the first half, David's triumphs. The second half, David's troubles. We will also see David anointed a second time and a third time in this book. He's already been anointed by Samuel to be king over all of Israel. And that happened when he was that boy, that shepherd boy, on the hills of Bethlehem. But now he's going to be anointed coming up here in 2 Samuel chapter 2, verse 4, as the king of Judah. So his tribe will anoint him, but not the rest of Israel. There's going to be some power struggle first. Finally, in about chapter 5, David will also be anointed for the third time as the king now of all Israel. So I kind of give you this background to say this. We know more about David in the scriptures than about any other, any other person in all of Israel's history. More is spoken about him. He is mentioned 1,048 plus times in the Bible. He is author of 73 of the Psalms. And he's the primary subject of over 62 chapters in the Hebrew Scriptures. He also can't be missed in the genealogy of Jesus Christ on both sides. Both coming down through the line of Joseph and coming down through the line of Mary, David is there. And he's prominently connected to Jesus three times at the very end of Scripture in the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 3 verse 7 tells us that Jesus holds the keys of David. The keys of David are interesting and we'll probably talk about that as we get further into the kingdom. But bottom line, the key of David or the keys of David open up the kingdom treasury. And Jesus has those in his hands. Revelation chapter 5 verse 5, Jesus is the root of David. Which is interesting because that says Jesus comes first. Though historically, physically, mankind would say, well, I think historically he, let's see, Jesus came after David, right? No, he is the root of David. David grows out of Jesus. Jesus is first. It tells us in Revelation 22:16, Jesus himself says, I am the root and the descendant of David. I came before and I came after. I love verses like that because it, it shows us the true deity of Jesus Christ. David also figures, some of you may not have heard this, in future prophecy. What's interesting to me is, according to Jeremiah and Ezekiel, it looks as though David's rule, David's role as a reigning prince of Israel is not done. It is not over. Let me read this to you. Ezekiel chapter 34, verse 23. tells us, I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will feed them. He will feed them himself and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. Now, you might think right off the bat, well, that could just be an allusion to Jesus Christ. 
right? Because he's called the son of David. So maybe God's just kind of using David as a picture of a king, but he's really intending to focus this on Jesus. There's some problems with taking that position. Jesus is not referred to as David anywhere else. Son of David, yes. But he's never called David. In this place, the Lord says, I'm going to set over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will feed them. Furthermore, David the prince is how he's referred to here. The prince, which the Hebrew word for prince is Nasi. And David the prince will also apparently offer up sin offerings during the millennial kingdom. He's going to offer sacrifices during the millennial kingdom. It says in Ezekiel 45.22, On that day the prince, which is David, who we know from before here, On that day the prince shall provide for himself and for all the people of the land a bull for a sin offering. A couple things to note. Jesus would never have to offer up a sacrifice for himself. Because Jesus is perfect. So this David the prince cannot be the human... It cannot be Jesus, because if it was Jesus, he wouldn't need to offer up a sacrifice for himself. Now you might say, okay, but Rick, why would they be offering up sacrifices at all? I mean, if it's the millennial kingdom, Jesus already died 2,000 years ago for our sin, putting an end to sacrifice, why then would it be reinstituted in the millennial kingdom? And that's a great question that you probably ought to figure out and get back to me so I can tell everybody else what the answer is. (laughs) No, I I have a couple of, of theories on that, and I'll just throw them out to you. Number one, the millennium is Israel's restored kingdom. It actually makes sense that some of what Israel did in the kingdom under David back in history would be reinstituted again in the millennial kingdom. Don't forget this. The millennium, people ask, why is there a thousand year reign of Christ? What that, what's that all about? And if you really take that literally, which I personally do, why would God do that? Because he's fulfilling the promise he made to the Jewish people. He promised them a kingdom. He promised them reign and rule over all the earth. And he was very specific about that. And without going into all kinds of Hebrew scriptures to back that up in the Old Testament, the truth is that God promised Israel a kingdom. And he promised that there would be a a worldwide, earthwide rule out of Jerusalem and that Messiah, Mashiach, would be the one to rule from there. The millennium is a fulfillment of promise to Israel. It's not really even for you and me. As a matter of fact, what Revelation teaches, and I'm going to get way off my notes here, but what Revelation teaches is that we will rule and reign with Him in the Millennial Kingdom. That our role is different. The Kingdom isn't for us. The Kingdom is for us to be with Him and to serve and to rule and reign there on the earth. And if you have more questions about that, pick up the Revelation study and you can, you can hear more about that. But the second thing that I would point out about the offerings and why I think they will be reinstituted during the Millennial Kingdom is the offerings will probably be reflective for the Jewish people in the same way that communion is reflective for us. And we take communion every Sunday. Jesus died 2,000 years ago. We don't take it looking forward. We take it looking back and proclaiming Jesus' death until He comes. It's a reflective time for us. So it makes sense that some of the offerings, specific ones, would be reinstituted. That as they're giving the offerings, it's not, not to cover or wash their sin clean as much as to look back to the cross where Jesus did in a graphic way that would be very understood by Jewish people. So those are my guesses on that, and you can ponder those things and chew on them if you'd like, if you'd like to. Now, all this stuff about David, it's fascinating. He is so well-known in Scripture, so well-known in history. I mean, people know who King David is. All you have to do is say his name, and people can draw back to that. Christian or not, in our culture especially, people know about David. 
But for all the knowledge that we have of David that is biblical, it's curious to me that this shepherd, this poet, this prophet, this king, had no direct archaeological evidence of his existence for years and years and years. In fact, until 1993, we had no physical archaeological proof that David ever existed at all. There are a lot of people who said, oh, nice stories about this kid slinging the rock and and killing the giant. Nice stories about this shepherd who became a king. That's all nice and fluffy and religious, but you got no proof. There are a lot of skeptics, especially in the world of archaeology, until 1993 when a stone monument was found in northern Israel at the site of Tel Dan. And on this stone monument, which, by the way, was a monument set up by Israel's enemies, the Syrians which I'm sure would really frustrate Syria today, but it's a Syrian monument found in Tel Dan, northern Israel, and on it was written, The House of David. And 1993 was the first time where we could say, there you go. David did exist. The House of David is true. There is legitimacy to it. Today, if you go to Jerusalem next October, which is when we're going to be taking a group, if you go, you will actually walk down steps into the city of David. It's amazing. It's one of my favorite stops on the tour because as you go down there, you are looking at stones. Well, in fact, at the bottom of the steps down, you remember this, Joe? You get down to the bottom and there's a wall that is nearly, what, 4,000 years old? At least 3,000 years old. And they call it the Jebusite Wall. It was one of the original walls of Jerusalem back even before David conquered it, which we'll read about in 2 Samuel chapter 5. David's been around. We now have proof that he existed, but you know what? We didn't need it. I didn't need the archaeological proof because the Word tells us the truth. And we knew all along, and and I I just love when that happens. I mean, permit me to gloat for just a moment, but I love when the world says, there's no truth in that, and then truth, as the Bible says, springs up from the ground, and the archaeologist goes, all right, there's a house of David. And I say, yeah, (laughs) we knew that. Well, let's begin 2 Samuel. I want to pause for just a moment and pray as we head into the scripture tonight. Father, we thank you for this time, and, and we pray, Lord, that you will use it. To your, to your purposes. That, Father, you will be glorified as we pray before in this. Lord, that our hearts would be drawn more towards you. That our spirits would be lifted upward. And that our attitudes, Father, would be about heading home. We pray the words of the study, Lord, will infiltrate us and change us as your Holy Spirit speaks to us. And we pray, Lord, also that your Spirit would speak the words you need us to hear. Not what necessarily I prepared, but whatever needs to go into the ears of each and every individual here. Your sons and your daughters, Lord, would you speak your words that we might be blessed by you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Alright, let's begin Second Samuel chapter 2. Saul and Jonathan are dead, and the timing seems really good for David to go storming with his mighty men right there back into Israel and take his anointed place as king, but it's going to be harder than you might have thought. It came about afterwards that David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up to one of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, Go up. <laughs> I love how direct the Lord is. He doesn't, you know, mince words, just go up. And David said, Where shall I go up? And he said, To Hebron. So David went up there, and his two wives also, Ahinoam, uh, the Jezreelitess, and Abigail, the widow of Nabal the Carmelite. And David brought up his men who were with him, each with his household, and they lived in the cities of Hebron. 
Then the men of Judah came and came and there anointed David king over the house of Judah. Three things to take note here. The first one is a great panorama. Second one is a great prayer, and the third one, tell you ahead of time, is a great picture. Well, a great panorama. There's something I noticed here. When did we first hear of this place that the Lord tells David to go up to when he says, Where shall I go in Israel? He says, Go up to Hebron. Where did we first hear of Hebron? For the first mention of this, go in your Bibles back to Genesis chapter 13. Genesis 13. It's interesting as, as, we're, as you're turning back there. I was kind of flipping through Genesis and, and missing it. I was thinking about the first year when we, when we started the bridge and we're studying through Genesis. And there is so much rich scripture and so much in there. And, and I was thinking, what? I guess we're going to have to get all the way around the horn before we go back to Genesis. But it's, a, it's an amazing book. Well, Genesis chapter 13, verse 14 tells us the Lord said to Abram after Lot had separated from him lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are northward and southward and eastward and westward for all the land which you see I will give it to you and to your descendants forever I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth so that if anyone can number the dust of the earth then your descendants can also be numbered arise walk about the land through its length and its breadth for I will give it to you Then Abram moved his tent and came and dwelt by the oaks of Mamre, which are in Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. Abraham, there in Hebron. And God made him a promise. He said, lift up your eyes, Abraham, look around, go for a walk, check out this land. Everything that your eyes can see, I'm giving it to you and to your descendants for all eternity. It's yours. This is your land, Abraham. And what's interesting, and you Bible students may remember this, do you remember how many square miles of land was actually promised by God to Abram? Can you remember? 300,000. 300,000 square miles. At the height of Solomon's kingdom, how much of that land did they actually hold? 30,000. Right on, Gary. 30,000 out of 300,000. So Israel only ever held 10% of what God promised to them land-wise. I promise you, if Scripture can be trusted, they will hold all of it. They will hold it all, and I believe, again, that's purpose for the millennial kingdom. But we see things here coming full circle as God's promise to Abraham. He says, I am going to give this land to you. And here, the king of God's choosing, David, is told when he comes into the land, go to Hebron. Go to Hebron. Now, the people may have forgotten that's where Abraham first went but, and David may not even have been sure. I don't know, but the Lord did not forget. The Lord sent him back there. There's a cave in Hebron, the cave of Mamre, that, that Abraham purchased for himself. And he's buried there, even to this day. He and, and Sarah, part of the reason he wanted to be buried there was that Abraham believed that God was going to resurrect him. And when he was resurrected, he wanted to walk out the door of his cave and be in Hebron. And so one day, he will. Now, we see God's kingdom come in even greater panorama. As the son of David returns, he establishes his rule, and he will establish his rule then from Hebron. He'll move it into Jerusalem, but that's a couple chapters away. By the way, a decade ago, it's been about ten years now, roughly, Israel celebrated an anniversary. It was the 3,000th anniversary of David conquering Jerusalem. This year is the 60th anniversary of Israel becoming a nation again. 
but 10 years back, 3,000th Have you ever had, anybody had a 3,000th anniversary? I mean, that's amazing to me. You know, we think our country's so old, you know, we've been around for a while, a couple hundred years or so, plus or minus, you know. 3,000 years, incredible. So it's a great panorama, and the Lord will do this again and again in Scripture. He keeps bringing us back and bringing us back and proving to us over and over His faithfulness. Great panorama. Number two, a great prayer. A great prayer. Well, where's the great prayer? Shall I go up to one of the cities of Judah? What's great about that? Well, I'm not talking about the prayer itself as much as the man giving the prayer. A great prayer, and that's David. See, Saul is dead. And from my perspective reading this, the kingdom's David's for the taking. All he has to do is go take it. He knows he's anointed. Saul's out of the way. Go get it. But David just doesn't seem to do anything without this phrase, David inquired of the Lord. And I love that about David because he will say it again and again and again. The Bible tells us David inquired of the Lord. Shall I go up to one of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said, go up. And so David asked a second time. He prays now twice. Where shall I go up? And he said, to Hebron. David prays two ways here. He prays generally and he prays specifically. Should I go at all? Yes. Once he has that answer, well, where should I go? Getting more specific. And the Lord says, to Hebron. And I think it's interesting that the Lord gives David exactly what he asks for and nothing more. Should I go up to the land? The Lord could have said, yeah, yeah, head on up to Hebron. That's where I need you to be. And by the way, when you get there, I want you to go ahead and establish your kingdom. The men of Judah, they're going to come and they're going to anoint you. And then after they anoint you, you're going to become king over Judah. You're going to have some struggle, a little bit of fighting, some battles there. But eventually, the men of Israel are going to come and they're going to anoint you too. So that's what I want you to do. Are we clear about that, David? Do you understand everything I have to say to you? My Bible says, he said, go up. Where? To Hebron. And that's all he gets. And sometimes, that's all I get. Lord, should I do this? Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. Could you give me something else? How about a little more information, Father? I could use some more specificity in my life. How am I supposed to do this? What's it going to look like? What will the result be a week or two weeks or, or a month now? Lord, can you just give me more than yes? Or no. Or silence. I really hate that one. And I look at this with David and I think, you know, in prayer, it's very true. The Lord often only gives us as much as we ask for and nothing more. But He's not playing games with us. It's not that He's sitting there going, Michael, Gabriel, come here, take this out. He's going to give him a two-word answer. Let's see how they handle that one. Why is it that the Lord does this? Jesus says in Matthew 7, verse 7, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you'll find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. And I've told you before, ask, seek, knock, those three words. Literally in the Greek, it's keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. God is not interested in being an encyclopedia that gives you a quick answer. God is interested in a relationship that takes time. He wants to walk with us. Les and I were talking about prayer today. And talking about just this whole, how do you teach prayer? And I knew I was going to talk about this tonight. I didn't let him in on that. But I knew we were going to talk a little bit again about prayer. I did say, it's interesting to me that almost every time we crack the word, prayer is in there somewhere. Almost every study we have, it seems like there's some kind of mention or focus of prayer. And we were, we were debating and talking about this. How, how do we teach prayer? How, how, do we, how do you do that? 
I mean, does it, does it work for you all? We're going to talk about prayer tonight, you know, praying generally, praying specifically, being constant in prayer. And when you walk out the door, does, is that going to make your prayer life better than it was before you came? I don't mean to be negative, but probably not. And probably not. There's only one way to deepen your prayer life, your relationship with the Lord, and that's just to do it. That's to spend time with Him. It's to say, I don't even know what to say, Lord. But I'm just going to start talking, and I'm going to spend some time where I'm just listening. And I'm going to wait on you. And God is not playing games with us. He wants us to keep on keeping on in prayer because to the Lord it's not about the single answer. To the Lord it's about the relationship. It's about walking with us. It's about a friendship. I'll tell you what, my marriage would fail miserably if I always gave my wife one or two word answers. If that's all she could ever get out of me. But we talk and we spend time and we wait together and it deepens our relationship. Corey Tenboom said this. She said, Is prayer your steering wheel or is it your spare tire? I really like that. Are you steering throughout the day with prayer or is it something you call upon? Is prayer something that happens when your day goes flat? <laughs> Things aren't going well, Lord. Got to get out the spare. Where's the jack? You know? Or are you steered by it? Do I inquire of the Lord, shall I go up? Where shall I go up? Seeking to be rightly steered through life. And the Lord is willing and He's ready to respond, but He is the one who says, be persistent. He's the one who's trying to draw us into this place where we're in constant communication with Him, as opposed to hit and miss type stuff. Jesus said in Luke 11, verse 5, Suppose one of you has a friend and goes to him at midnight and says to him, Friend, lend me three loaves. Rude. Someone, tell you what, don't call me at midnight asking for bread. I probably won't answer, and if I do, I'll probably just say, go and be filled. Click, you know. <laughs> so what if you do this? You go and you say, friend, let me three loaves, for a friend of mine has come to me, Jesus said, from a journey, and I don't have anything to set before him. And from inside, his friend answers and says, don't bother me, the door's already been shut, and my children and I are in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. And Jesus says, I tell you, even though he will not get up and give him anything because he's his friend, yet because of his persistence, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. All right, all right, just stop knocking on my door. And it's not that the Lord gets frustrated with our persistence, but the Lord responds to our persistence. The Lord wants us to be persistent in prayer because he knows something starts to happen. The more persistent we are, the more relationship is formed. And that's what God wants. That's what he's looking for. Persistent prayer is the basis of personal relationship with the Lord. And it's obviously the basis of David's relationship with the Lord. David, the man after God's own heart, because he was in a constant love relationship with the Lord. Should I go? Where should I go? How should I lead? Lord, what do you want me to do here? Lord, I'm listening. And that was David. Prayer can't be taught any more than a relationship can be instantaneous. It's something that takes time and persistence and personal involvement. So all I can really say to you all about prayer tonight is be persistent. Keep asking. Now I'm not getting all the answers I want. Keep asking. The Lord's not playing games, but He is trying to attract you into a place of relationship. And He'll get you there. So a great panorama, a great prayer, and number three, a great picture. This is one of those little things that kind of jumped up at me. And I'm going to warn you right here, we are going to rabbit trail big time for a few minutes. So just follow along. 
Verse 3 tells us that David brought up his men who were with him, each with his household, and they lived in the cities of Hebron. And i got to ask the question, which men did David bring up? Which of his men who had been with him, kind of through thick and through thin, which of these guys did David bring up? The obvious answer is the right one. All of them. He brought them all. He led them all into Hebron. Remember a few chapters back. There were a handful of David's men that said there are some other of David's men that should not come with us or be with us anymore. They were going to battle. They came back down and they found there their, at their hideout, their home base of Ziklag in the land of Philistia. They came back down, found it waylaid and wiped out. All their wives' families kidnapped. So they start to head out and march to go take them out. And a bunch of David's men just said, oh, We are beat. We can't go. We're exhausted. You're going to go without us. We'll, we'll hang out here by the baggage. We'll take care of things. We'll try and clean this city up. You go. And so David takes the rest of his men and they go fight. And they win. But as they come back, there's a little problem. Back in 1 Samuel chapter 30, verse 22, it says, All the wicked and worthless men among those who went with David said, Because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we've recovered, except every man, his wife, and children, that they may lead them away and depart. These guys didn't fight with us. They're not one of us. They're not like us. They need to be out of here. We have nothing to do with them, David. And if it were up to those, what the Bible says, wicked and worthless men, when they came to Hebron, the guys who had stayed behind in the battle would have been left behind by David. If it was up to those guys. I love what David says in verse 23 of 1 Samuel 30. You must not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us, who has kept us and delivered into our hand the band that came against us, And who will listen to you in this matter? For as his share is who goes down to the battle, so shall his share be who stays by the baggage they shall share and share alike. When David went to Hebron, all of his men went with him. Now tragically, in the church we can slip into judgment mode, not for the purpose of accountability, but for the purpose of comparison. And we start to compare other churches. By the way... There's a pastor from another church here tonight. I'll talk to you about him next week. And we compare other churches. We'll look around. And we'll say, well, well, they don't do it the way we do it. Or, man, we're out here being evangelistic. You know, we're, we're working hard for the Lord. And they're sitting back there and just being traditional. They're one of those denominations, and they're just dying on the vine. So, you know, I'll tell you what, when the rapture comes, I know who's going and who's not. I know I'm going, and I know that church is going to be full on Sunday. I have actually been asked the question, at the time of the rapture of the church, will some of the weaker believers be left behind? Who will be taken? Who will be left? I mean, Jesus said, two are going to be standing in the field, one's going to be taken, and one's going to be left. So what's the deciding factor here? I've even seen pictures, in fact, in an Israel My Glory magazine, which, by the way, is an excellent magazine. There's a picture on an old cover that I have in my office that shows a church sanctuary. And inside it, it's, the rapture has apparently just occurred. And in this church sanctuary, there, there are clothes all around. Nice suits, you know, they're kind of laid across the pews and, and dresses and jewelry and things left as the people are taken up. Don't worry, they're in their glorified bodies, so it's not scary as they're all heading up. But they're gone, and there are people throughout the sanctuary standing there going, you're horrified. I got left! 
never leave any of his bride behind when he goes on the honeymoon? Thank you. When Cheryl and I were married and we went on our honeymoon, I really wanted to take all of her. You know? It just would have been weird to, to land in Hawaii and go, You brought your foot? I've never liked that foot. You know? Not, I'm not saying that about Cheryl. Please, if that gets back her, I'm in trouble. No, you don't like my feet? No. I, anyway. No, the bridegroom takes all of the bride with him. David takes all of his men when he goes into the promised land, into Hebron. And in the same way, the bridegroom is going to take all of the bride. When the Lord calls and says, come up here, and the church is caught up, the whole bride of Christ is going to go together. There is no mention in Scripture... Of some being left to continue the battle. By the way, that's just a weird theology that I actually heard someone say, well, I think, you know, I might be one of those that are left here to fight. I'm like, are you just trying to hedge your bets just in case you are left? (laughs) No, that's not the plan. The Bible says that God is not destined anyone for wrath, but for salvation in Jesus Christ, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. It is very clear that the bride will go and will go home. And you might say, well then what is the standard for being raptured? For being caught up? Because some are going to be left. We know that. Okay, what is the standard? Turn in your Bibles to Matthew 24. Matthew 24. I promised you a big rabbit trail. You're going to get one. What is the standard? For being the bride, for being caught up, for not being left behind. Listen to what Jesus says here. Matthew 24 and verse 37. He says, The coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. Now you can do a whole comparison to what the world was like in Noah's day and what the world is like today and it's amazingly, strikingly similar. But he says it's going to be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. There will be two men in the field. One will be taken and one will be left. There will be two women grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one will be left. Jesus says, therefore be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. What was, what was the problem in Noah's day? Now again, we can make a whole list of comparisons, but what is the single most important thing that was going on in Noah's day? Jesus tells us they did not understand or know, they did not know the flood was coming. They had no idea that it was coming. Now when we did study Genesis, we talked about the fact that this was not a surprise for the people. The coming of the flood should not have shocked anyone on planet earth at the time. It wasn't as though they had had no warning. Noah had been preaching about the coming of the flood for 120 years before it happened. Well, how do you know that, Rick? Well, Peter says Noah was a preacher of righteousness. We know that it was 120 years from when God said, I will contend with man no longer. His days are going to be 120 years. And 120 years later, he flooded the earth. And he said he would never do it again. So we're okay there. The world had ample warning. What kind of ample warning? Well, Noah preached for 120 years, but God went back further than that. In the seventh generation, now Noah was in the tenth generation from Adam. In the seventh generation, a man named Enoch was born. 
Enoch's the first prophet we have on record. You can read what he prophesied. We have it written in Jude 14 and 15. The prophecy of Enoch. What he said, and by the way, the very first written prophecy going back to the furthest, to the seventh generation from Adam, that prophecy of Enoch is about the second coming of Jesus Christ. Which is amazing to me that the first prophet's words were about the coming of Jesus the second time. But Enoch prophesied, and he was a prophet. Enoch had a son. You can read about this in Genesis chapter 5. I won't take time to do it right now. Genesis 5, 25 through 27. Enoch had a son and named his son Methuselah. Now you may have heard the name Methuselah, oldest man who ever lived in the Bible. And by the way, something that's fun to do, if you take Adam and take the ten generations in, in Genesis chapter 5, and you lay them out as to how old each man was, Adam was still alive just before the flood. Adam was. He lived over 900 years. And if you track it down to when they get, and it tells in Genesis chapter 5 when each one of these men were born, how old Adam was when he had Seth, how old Seth was when he had it on down the line. So they were contemporaries in many cases of each other. Fascinating to me to, to see that and to see how it lays out. We just don't think about that. We think that Adam died and then Seth went on and Seth died and then his son. And that's not how it happened. If you live 900 years, you're going to see several generations follow you. And so they do overlap. But Enoch, this prophet, has a son and names him Methuselah. Methuselah was born 687 years after Adam's birth. So Adam was 687 years old when Methuselah was born to Enoch, which was the seventh generation after Adam. Isn't that amazing? Kind of freaked me out there. Uh, Methuselah died in 16, well, 1,656 years after Adam's birth, which is the year of the flood. Methuselah dies right before the flood happens. Now what's significant about that? Well, Methuselah was 969 years old and Methuselah's name, his dad the prophet, named his son. When he dies, judgment comes. The world had ample warning that judgment was coming. All the way back, how many generations? If you look at Genesis chapter 5, let me just point this out. How many generations is that? There's Adam, Seth, Enosh, Kenan, Mahalalel, who, by the way, Dan was the first Hawaiian in Scripture, Mahalalel. And then Jared, Enoch. So you got Enoch, who's in the seventh generation, Methuselah is the eighth, Lamech is the ninth, and Noah is the tenth. So three generations early, the warning of the flood was already being preached by the prophet Enoch. We know Noah in his life preached the warning. The flood is coming. Why are you getting into all this older stuff? Gang, the number one issue in who's going to be raptured and who's not is belief. Who really believes it's going to happen? Who really believes Jesus Christ saves? That's the issue. It's not a matter of who happens to go to Common Ground Church versus the bridge. Gave you a plug there. It doesn't matter if you happen to be a first assembly in Anacortes or Christ the King. That is not the defining factor as to who's going to go and who's going to stay. The bride of Christ is going. And for once, all of us pastors are not going to have to preach anymore. We're just going to sit around and listen to Jesus. It's going to be great. And there's not going to be all the separate churches. The dividing line is faith. Do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? Now listen, this even means that the dividing line is not what you believe about the coming of Jesus. 
Now, I myself, in, in preaching and in teaching before, in Revelation, I have hinted that, there, <laughs> that that may be the case. That if you are not watching for Jesus' coming, that you might miss Him. And I believe that I'm probably wrong in that area. I know that's shocking, but I, I probably am. <laughs> the determining factor... What's going to be fun about this is there are going to be people caught up in the rapture who do not believe in the rapture. And as they're going up, they're going to be going, Holy cow! What's happening? This is blowing my theology out of my head, you know? Of course, if I'm wrong about it, well then my theology will be blown. But it doesn't matter. What matters is faith in Jesus Christ first and foremost. That is the determining factor. If you're a member of the bride, if you're part of the bride, you're going when he calls. Just as David didn't leave one man behind, not one child, not one wife, all of his men and all of their families came with David in the same way that the whole bride is going to go with Jesus. Now, I I pause and point that out because we need to recognize it's not those who believe differently who will be left behind. There's a lot of different faith and different belief within Christianity. A lot of different theology. The the, the deciding factor is faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Period. All the rest of the stuff will get worked out. Now Sunday we talked a lot about doctrine and the importance of sound doctrine and truth. And I still stand for that and I still say that we are called to know truth and to know the word as it is and not not to get off in weird tangents. But even people who are off in weird tangents, if their faith is in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, they're going home. They're going home. Whether they're a toe or a finger or an eyelash, the bride, the whole bride, is going on the honeymoon. Strong believers, let me encourage you in this. David's men, weak or strong, still believed in him. They still supported him. And so they all went with him. In the same way in the church, weak or strong, people may be winded and tired. People may not be as faithful as you. They may not be as prayerful as you. They may not be as biblically sound as you are. They may be weak. But if they believe in Jesus Christ, they're going home. And we, as those who would be stronger, and I speak to our Wednesday night Bible study crowd because I kind of have an assumption here about that, we have a call by the Lord to love and not give up on those who are weaker, who are struggling along, who have faith but maybe aren't expressing it very well in their lives. Paul says in Romans 15, We who are strong ought to bear with the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. Each of us is to please his neighbor for his good, to his edification. And I have shared before that the more mature you are in Jesus Christ, the more you're going to care about those who are immature in Jesus Christ, and not the other way around. It's not the more mature I am, the less I can tolerate those (laughs) idiots who just show up once a month or so. They really have no place in this church anyway, do they? Dan, I mean, should they even be here? You know, if you're coming once a month, then he's going, let's see, how many times have I... It's, okay, I play guitar, so I'm here all the time. Yeah, that's good. I'm safe. <laughs> Weak or strong, our faith in Jesus is our calling card home. Let's go back to Second Samuel. Second Samuel chapter 2, verse 4. So the men of Judah came, and they anointed David king over the house of Judah. And they told David, saying, David, it was the men of Jabesh Gilead who buried Saul. Now, I don't know if they're just giving information or if they're being tattletales. 
you know, people are still trying to figure out where David's allegiance lies. People still don't realize how much David loves Saul in spite of Saul's behavior. So I, I get the feeling maybe they're kind of telling on the men of Jabesh Gilead, hey, they went and got the body of Saul. Just thought you might want to know. <laughs> so you can wipe them out if you want to. David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh Gilead and said to them, May you be blessed of the Lord because you have shown kindness to Saul your Lord and have buried him. Now may the Lord show loving kindness and truth to you. And I also will show this goodness to you because of this thing that you've done. Now therefore let your hands be strong and be valiant for Saul your Lord is dead and also the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. This is a beautiful example once again of David's theology expressed in the fruit of love and kindness and goodness. This comes out of a heart of a man who knows the Lord. That he's not vengeful, that he's not angered that these guys were were supporters of Saul. Because the men of Jabesh Gilead were supporters of Saul big time. They were on Saul's side, not David's side. And David's response and reaction to them is, May God bless you and I will bless you because you remain faithful to your Lord Saul, to your King Saul. I love that about David. By the way, it's also a brilliant political move. Because at this point, the kingdom is divided. It will be much more so later, but David in his life does a a brilliant job of bringing together Israel and Judah into one nation. So that by the time Solomon comes along, it's a unified kingdom. It won't be for very long, but it is for a little while. Now on the other side of the political landscape is a man named Abner. Verse 8. But Abner, the son of Ner, commander, (laughs) which is a great name, isn't it? Ner. <laughs> Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, had taken Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mannheim, which is where they make steamrollers. Verse 9 He made him king over Kilead, over the Asherites, over Jezreel, over Ephraim, and over Benjamin, even over all Israel. Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he became king over Israel, and he was king for two years. Not a real long reign. The house of Judah, however, followed David. The time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. Abner. Abner is Saul's cousin. And he wanted to keep power in the family. And so he makes sure that Ishbosheth, the one remaining son of Saul, there were four of them, three were killed in battle. And now Ishbosheth is left. Apparently he was not in battle. And we don't know a lot about Ishbosheth, but we do know his name. And his name, I believe, tells us something of this man's character. It's interesting. Ishbosheth has actually three names in the Bible. He's listed three different times in three different names. The first time is 1 Samuel 14:49, where his name is Ishvi or, or Ishui. Ishui meaning just like me. Saul looked at his second-born son and said, "This one's just like me." By the time we get to 2 Samuel chapter 2, verse 8, now he is being called Ishbosheth, which means man of shame. I don't think I would have chosen that moniker for myself. I'm not sure how he got it. Perhaps because when his whole family, all of his other brothers and his father were fighting the Philistines, Ishbosheth was not there. Ishbosheth means man of shame. By the time he's mentioned again in 1 Chronicles chapter 8, verse 33, his name is now changed to Eshbaal, which doesn't mean man of shame, it means man of Baal. 
So we see where his allegiances lie, and we see that his character is, is shady at best. And in the end, Ishbosheth is going to die in shame as two of his own captains murder him in his bed. Bottom line, right now there's a battle going on for the throne. Abner sets up Ishbosheth, and he's standing strong for Israel. This is going to be Israel's king. We don't care who Judah chooses. Judah has already chosen David, and so there's strife and there's division before David steps up to the throne. Verse 12. Now Abner, the son of Ner, went out from Mahanaim to Gibeon with the servants of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul. Joab, the son of Zeruiah, then the servants of David went out and met them by the pool of Gibeon and they sat down one on one side of the pool and the other on the other side of the pool so Abner is for Saul's men the house of Saul and Joab is for David's men the house of David and now they meet by this pool kind of a poolside chat that they're going to have here only it won't be a chat verse 14 Abner said to Joab let the young men arise and hold a contest before us and Joab, Joab said let them arise so they arose and went over by count, twelve for Benjamin and Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and twelve of the servants of David. Each one of them seized his opponent by the head and thrust his sword into his opponent's side, so they fell down together. Therefore that place was called Helkath Hazarim, which is in Gibeon. It's like a scene out of a Monty Python movie, you know. Everybody grabs each other, spear each other, and all twenty-four fall down dead. It's a great little battle scene. What's going on here is basically Survivor. You've seen the show Survivor? And there are two tribes. You have the tribe from Saul, you have the tribe from the men of David, and there are 12 in each one, and they're going to do battle together. Instead of everybody fighting, let's just send out a handful from each one. And they fight, and they all kill each other, and they all die, so they all lost. No last man is standing. And so they name this place Helkab Hatzarim, which means Field of Swords. Because that's all really that was left standing at the end of this battle. So this contest wasn't enough and civil war breaks out between the men of the house of Saul and the men of the house of David. Verse 17, that day the battle was very very severe and Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David. Now the three sons of Zeruiah were there, Joab and Abishai and Asahel. And Asahel was as swift-footed as one of the gazelles which is in the field. Asahel pursued Abner and did not turn to the right or to the left from following Abner. And then Abner, he looked behind him and said, Is that you, Asahel? And he answered, It is I. Now listen, the chase is on here. So you get a picture of this. You've got this young man, Asahel, and he's chasing after like crazy. He's running down Abner. Abner is a seasoned commander. He's like an army general. He knows his stuff. He's tough. He's a hard fighter. Asahel will not have a chance to beat him. And Abner knows this. And so Abner calls back there. Is that you, Asahel? Are you chasing me down? It is I as he chases after him. And so Abner said, Turn to your right or to your left. Take hold of one of the young men for yourself. And take for yourself his spoil. This is warning number one. Leave me alone, dude. This is not safe for you. I'm not someone you want to mess with. But Asahel, verse 21, was not willing to turn aside from following him. Abner repeated again to Asahel, Turn aside from following me. Why should I strike you to the ground? How then could I lift up my face to your brother Joab? This is like north versus south, gang. Israel and Judah are brothers. They are family. They are friends. There is connection. And now this civil war is broken out. They're fighting each other. And Abner saying, I don't want to kill you. I know that your brother happens to be Joab, the commander of the other army, and I have respect for Joab. Please don't chase me down. However, verse 22, 
verse 23, he refused to turn aside. He keeps chasing him. Therefore Abner struck him in the belly with the butt end of the spear, so that the spear came out his back. That would be a br- I mean, we're not talking about the spear head going through. We're talking about the, the flat-ended butt going into him. The King James tells us it actually catches him beneath, beneath the fifth rib, which means it pierced right through his heart and came out his back. And it killed him instantly. It says he fell there and died on the spot. And it came about that all who came to the place where Asahel had fallen and died, they stood still. I don't think Abner's intent was to kill him. I, and I think that's apparent because first, first of all, he warned him two times. Stop, don't, don't keep chasing me, this is not good. And secondly, when he finally did jab him, he doesn't turn around and fight. He goes like this. He's not even looking. He takes the spear and thrusts backwards. And I think what he's thinking he'll do is just poke Asa Hell and, and knock him down and he'll fall down and he can run off and, and not have to face him. But Asa Hell is closer than he thought. And instead of knocking him out, knocking the wind out of him, he literally plugs the heart right out of him. Abner is a noble warrior. I tell you this because you need to understand his character. This is a good guy. And as a matter of fact, as you get on into chapter 3, he will change his allegiance to David because he sees where the right is. And he sees where the right place to be is. But he catches Asahel in just the wrong place. Verse 24. Now Joab and Abishai, they're Asahel's brothers, they pursued Abner. But when the sun was going down, they came to the hill of Ammah, which is in front of Gia, by the way of the wilderness of Gibeon. And the sons of Benjamin gathered together behind Abner and became one band, and they stood on the top of a certain hill. And Abner called to Joab and said, Shall the sword devour forever? Do you not know that it will be bitter in the end? How long will you refrain from telling the people to turn back from following their brothers? And Joab said, As God lives, if you had not spoken, surely then the people would not have gone away in the morning, each from following his brother. And what happens here is a truce is called. All right, no more fighting. We'll stop. Joab blew the trumpet, verse 28, and all the people halted and pursued Israel no longer, nor did they continue to fight anymore. Abner and his men then went through the Arabah all that night, so they crossed the Jordan and walked all morning and came to Mahanaim. And when Joab returned from following Abner, when he had gathered all the people together, 19 of David's servants beside Asahel were missing. MIA. Verse 31, But the servants of David had struck down many of Benjamin and Abner's men, so that 360 men died. Verse 32, And they took up Asahel and buried him in his father's tomb, which was in Bethlehem. And Joab and his men went all night until the day dawned at Hebron. Now, there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. But David grew steadily stronger. The house of Saul grew weaker continually. It is a rough road to the kingdom for David. He doesn't just walk in and go, Okay, Saul's gone, I'm here. Where's the throne? It's a fight, it's a bitter fight, and it's a family fight, it's civil war. But don't miss this, it's interesting to me, as as difficult as this road was, the house of Saul, throughout this war, the house of Saul gets weaker and weaker and weaker. Whereas the house of David gets stronger and stronger and stronger. The house of Saul has Ishbosheth, the man of shame, this puppet ruler, who Abner probably is the real power behind the throne, but it just gets weaker and weaker. Abner gets stronger, the Bible will tell us, but the house of Saul weaker. The house of David is flexing muscle, 
and showing strength. And there's an encouraging picture here for us that we shouldn't miss. The house of Saul in Scripture portrays for us sin and selfishness. Saul himself is a picture of a selfish man, a self-centered man. It was all about him. And he portrays, I think, a legitimate picture of sin in the Bible and selfishness, whereas the house of David portrays our Savior, Jesus Christ. Now think about this in the life that we lead, in the life that we live as Christians. We're in a civil war. Your life, my life, it is a civil war, and the war is long. It starts from the day you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior, and the civil war does not end until He calls you home. The battle goes on and on. It's a long war. It lasts a lifetime. But if I'm in the Word, if I'm in prayer, if I'm in walking and living and breathing relationship with Jesus Christ, guess what? The house of Saul, my sin, my selfishness, it gets weaker. The house of David, my Savior, gets stronger. And the further down the line I go, I I can test at any point. I know where I'm at with the Lord. Am I stronger in the Lord today than I was yesterday? Then the house of David is growing stronger. Am I weaker in the Lord than the house of Saul is is coming around the bend? But what we see, and I believe it's it's an example of God's intention for us, He wants the house of David to grow. He wants you to have that, that strength and that knowledge That your Savior, your true King, is growing stronger and stronger and stronger in your life. It's not a static thing. Christianity is not static. And sometimes we make it that way. We accept Jesus. And we get into routine. And then nothing changes. And I'll tell you, if nothing's changing in your spiritual walk, you are not walking in relationship with the Lord. Because if you're walking in relationship with the Lord, it is dynamic. And it is life-changing. And you do see things differently today than you did a year ago or 10 years ago or 20 years ago. Because the house of David is growing stronger. Paul said in Philippians 1.6, I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. In other words, this perfecting, this sanctification, if you will, is an ongoing process that gets better and better and better. Not your life. Life doesn't necessarily get better. You're still going to face tragedy and turmoil and hard times and persecution. And there are going to be times where you just don't have any energy. But your faith and your belief in the Lord and your ability to just trust Him, your knowledge of His Word, your immediate entering into prayer, it'll get stronger. And not because you intend for it to, but because the Lord intends for it to. In Psalm 17, I'm going to flip over here. You can turn there if you want, but let me just read this to you. Psalm 17, David is writing in verse 6. And he says the following. He says, I have called upon you, for you will answer me, O God. Incline your ear to me. Hear my speech wondrously. Show your loving kindnesses. O Savior of those who take refuge at your right hand, from those who rise up against them, keep me as the apple of the eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wing from the wicked who despoil me, my deadly enemies who surround me. They've closed their unfeeling heart. With their mouth they speak proudly. They have now surrounded us in our steps. They have set their eyes to cast us down to the ground. He is like a lion that is eager to tear. And as a young lion lurking in hiding places, he's talking about the enemy. And remember that the Bible tells us Satan is like a roaring lion. Who is seeking to devour. 
David says in verse 13, Arise, O Lord, confront him, bring him low, deliver my soul from the wicked with your sword, from men with your hand, O Lord, from men of the world whose portion is in this life, and whose belly you fill with your treasure, they are satisfied with children, and leave their abundance to their babes. As for me... I shall behold your face in righteousness. I will be satisfied with your likeness when I awake. See the contrast there? David's saying this world is filled with people whose bellies are going to be filled up with your treasures, Lord. What treasures? The world around us? The fruit of this world? The good things that God has given us in creation? A lot of people are going to get stuffed on that. David says, as wonderful as that is, I don't want it. You know what I want, Lord? I want to awaken in your presence. And when I see you, to behold your righteousness and to be satisfied by you. Not by the fruit of this earth. I want to be satisfied, Lord, by your spirit. Satisfied only in your presence. I know people like that. People who just love the Lord so much that there is no satisfaction here. It is all there. And they long for it and they they wait for it. And they will be filled. Those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, Jesus said, you're going to be filled. Are you, am I stronger in the Lord today than we were yesterday? Am I more loving? Am I more consistent? Am I more faithful? More humble? The house of Saul grows weaker as the house of David grows stronger. Now, last thing here, I want to do just a couple more verses and we'll finish for tonight. But something's interesting to me because in this long war, David is prolific. And he's not prolific in the writing of Psalms. He's actually prolific in the bearing of children. Watch this, verse 2. Sons were born to David at Hebron. His firstborn was Amnon by Ahinoam, the Jezreelitess. And his second, Kiliab by Abigail, the widow of Nabal, the Carmelite. And the third, Absalom, the son of Maacah, the daughter of Talmai, the king of Geshur. And the fourth, Adonijah, the son of Hagith. And the fifth, Shephatiah, the son of Abitel. And the sixth, Ephraim, by David's wife, Eglah. And these were born to David at Hebron. Each one of these six sons had a different mother. David is not only prolific in children, but apparently he's prolific in love. He is now multiplying for himself many wives, and he knows it's wrong. Because David knows the word. He knows scripture, and he must have known Deuteronomy 17.17, where the Lord says, When you enter the land and you have a king for yourself, he shall, quote, He shall not multiply wives for himself, or his heart will turn away. And what David is doing here, and i got to pause and point this out, for all the good that we see in David, he is sinning big time as he's multiplying his wives. He's now got several wives, including Michael. There are seven, seven wives, and there's going to be more after this. And I love what John, John Corson has to say about David's wives. He says this, maybe David justifies this by saying, I'm not multiplying wives, I'm just adding them. <laughs> it's amazing, Corson says, the figuring we do when we want to sin. It's amazing how we calculate things. It's not multiplication. <laughs> I'm just adding a few. I just have the one wife, Michael, and, and I look over and, well, goodness, she's kind of cute. I'm just going to add one more. 
so I'll have to. But she's kind of cute. Okay, I'm, I'm just adding one more. It's just going to be three. And I'm going to add one more and add one more and add one more. And what begins as addition becomes multiplication as David will have multiple wives. No one, no one starts by multiplying. Sin always begins with addition. I'm just going to take one step. I'm just going to have one conversation. I'm just going to spend one night. I'm just going to take one drink. It's always, I'm just going to do just one thing. No one starts out saying, I want to be a raging alcoholic sleeping in the bed of the 50th woman I've been with in seven weeks. That would be multiplication. And nobody does that. What we do is, I'm just going to have a second drink while I talk to this woman who's not my wife. Just, you know, but I'm not doing anything. I'm just, just adding a little bit. David began with one wife and two. Again, he wasn't adding. He was multiplying. Ultimately, we will see the Bathsheba incident. And she will join the crew. And David keeps adding and adding until he has a multiplicity of wives and concubines. Now listen to me on this. Though David remains faithful to the Lord in spite of this. Remember the Deuteronomy verse. Oops, I turned the page. The Deuteronomy verse says specifically, He shall not multiply wives for himself, or else his heart will turn away. David's heart doesn't. We can give him that credit. He does multiply wives for himself, but his heart never turns away from the Lord, because not one of those wives ever satisfy him the way the Lord does. Which is why he's a man after God's own heart. But... David's sin of multiplication is going to cross generations and it's going to cross kingdoms and it's going to impact his own son Solomon. In fact, all of his sons, his whole family is going to be a bloody mess. And Solomon himself, in 1 Kings chapter 11, it tells us this about the great king Solomon, which I believe is the fallout from David. Now, King Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh. Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women. From the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the sons of Israel, You shall not associate with them, nor shall they associate with you, for they will surely turn your heart away after their gods. Solomon held fast to these in love. What did the Lord say in Deuteronomy? Don't multiply wives because your heart will turn away. Right? Listen to this. He had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned his heart away. Exactly what the Lord said would happen. When Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away after other gods, and his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. David maintained his faithfulness and his love for the Lord in spite of multiplying his wives, but his children did not. And that is David's legacy with Solomon. And I'll tell you something tragic. I'm not even convinced that we're going to see Solomon in heaven. We might. Because the Bible says that they they turned his heart away, not wholly away, but they so there may still have been some faith in the man when he died, but it's possible that he chased after foreign gods to the extent that this this writer of Ecclesiastes and Proverbs, this great man in the history of Israel, might not even be saved because his heart turned away from the Lord because he multiplied wives. Where did he learn to do that? David. 
David. The Lord invites us when it comes to calculations, addition, multiplication. He invites us to one calculation, Luke 14, 27. Whoever does not carry his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Jesus says count the cost. Calculate what I'm asking of you. By the way, what he's asking of you is your entire life. Not much. You know, just everything. He doesn't want you Sundays and Wednesdays. He wants you always. He doesn't want you just when you happen to think of Him. He wants you always. And when He calls us to faith, He says, Make that calculation. And by the way, what will happen when you make that calculation for the Lord is what's going to be multiplied to you is blessing upon blessing upon blessing. You can't even add up what the Lord has in store for those who follow Him. David did make that calculation. David did give his whole heart to the Lord. David did love the Lord more than any of the wives, more than anyone in his life, including Jonathan, his best friend. David loved the Lord more. Now we end up with this and we see David's done some great things, but he's multiplying these wives. He's obviously sinning. And I can compare myself to that. I can look at the life of King David and go, I'm better than he was. Oh, great man of the Bible. Yeah, but I've been married 21 years to the same woman. I've been faithful to her. And man, I am better. I'm better than David. I'm in good shape here. Let me tell you something. You You can't compare your strength to David's flaws unless you compare your flaws to David's strength. It's real easy to, and and even with other believers. In fact, comparison is just a bad idea across the board. But if I'm going to compare myself to King David, and I'm going to say, well, look at the mess that he caused, and I haven't done that, then I better be willing to compare myself to the strength of King David. I better be ready to compare my faith to his faith, because that's the strength of the man, is his faith. Romans chapter 5 verse 1 Paul writes Therefore having been justified by faith We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ Through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith Into this grace in which we stand And we exult in the hope of the glory of God And not only this But we also exult in our tribulations Knowing that tribulation brings about, brings about perseverance And perseverance proving character And proving character hope And hope does not disappoint Because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts Through the Holy Spirit who was given to us and where did it all start? Faith. It all begins with faith in that real, tangible, working relationship with our Lord Jesus Christ. If I'm going to compare myself to anything in David, I better compare my faith to his faith because that comparison will make my faith grow. Do I start my day in faith the way David did? Psalm 17, 15, As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. I will be satisfied with your likeness when I awake. Do you wake up to the Lord in the morning? Let me encourage you that it's the best way to start the day. To wake up before you do anything else, before you say hi to anybody, which some of you, that may take a while anyway, but before you speak to another living soul, would you speak to the Lord? Begin your day with Him. Do I walk through the day in faith the way David did? Psalm 16, verse 8. He says, I have set the Lord continually before me because He is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. 
do I end the day in faith the way David did? Psalm 4 verse 8 he says in peace I will both lie down and sleep for you alone O Lord make me to dwell in safety he leaves a kind of raunchy legacy in his household in his family with Solomon his son but David leaves us a beautiful lasting legacy of faith and I believe it's the one that we're called to pay attention to let's pray Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for your word and the time that we have to look at David's life and consider him. We realize, Lord, that because we see and know so much about David that the flashlight is on him, he is under great scrutiny and will be as we study through 2 Samuel. And Lord, I realize if if something was written about my life, that the scrutiny would be there and I can't even imagine it stacking up. But Lord, I pray that as we look at David, as we look at all of these men, very real, flawed, sinful men in the Bible, that we will learn, Lord, not just from their mistakes, but we'll learn from their faith. And we'll look at the relationship David had with you, and has with you, and will have with you for all eternity, and we'll say, Lord, I want a relationship like that. And in fact, tonight, Lord, we say, we want to know you like David knows you. I want to walk with you, Lord, like David walked with you. I want to wake with you, walk with you, and lie down to sleep with you at night. I want you with me always. Father, lead us into prayerful, deep, and real relationships with you. Increase our faith, Lord Jesus, and it's in your name that we pray. Amen.